I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I have developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. As we continue our chronological reading of the Gospels, today we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 22, beginning with verse 41 all the way down to chapter 23, verse 39. Also Mark 12, verses 35 to 44. Luke chapter 20, beginning with verse 41 down to chapter 21, verse 4. And John chapter 12, verses 20 to 43. Here's where we are in the timeline. Jesus is still in and around Jerusalem, and this is the week preceding his crucifixion. We've been looking at a discourse that uh, has been taking place between Jesus and the Jewish leadership. And now in this passage, in Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 to 46, Mark 12, 35 to 37, and Luke 20, 41 to 44, it's Jesus' turn to ask some hard questions. Verse 41 in Matthew chapter 22. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They say unto him, The son of David. He saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able to answer him a word, neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. Now from Mark's perspective, in Mark chapter 12, beginning with verse 35. And Jesus answered and said, While he taught in the temple, how say the scribes that Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Ghost, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore himself calleth him Lord. And whence is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. Now over to Luke chapter 20, beginning with verse 41. And he said unto them, How say they that Christ is David's son? And David himself saith in the book of Psalms, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore calleth him Lord. How is he then his son? Well, this confrontation between the Jewish leadership and Jesus began back in Matthew chapter 22, verse 15, paralleled by Mark 12, 13 through 17, and Luke chapter 20, verses 20 to 26. That's when they sought to verbally trap Jesus in front of his disciples. In order to understand this conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees, it's important to know that Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. While the Pharisees are still gathered, Jesus fires a question at them unlike any that they'd probably ever considered. They were all well aware of the anticipated Messiah's ancestry based upon Old Testament Scripture. That's found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. Also, take a look at Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10, and Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5. Many Jewish scholars, but not all in Jesus' day, regarded Psalm 110 to be messianic. This question is for them. So how do you explain the words of King David in Psalms chapter 110, verse 1, 
where he said, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Jesus asked in verse 45 of Matthew chapter 22, he says this, If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? Well, this sums up the scriptural dilemma faced by those Pharisees. How could the Messiah be the descendant of King David and at the same time be his Lord? Well, the answer is it's a supernatural act of God that was fulfilled in Jesus himself. Well, and that put a stop to the questions. So then in the next section of Scripture, Jesus issues a very harsh word to the scribes and the Pharisees. We'll be looking at Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 39, Mark chapter 12, verses 38 to 40, and Luke chapter 20, verses 45 to 47. Matthew 23, verse 1. Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, all therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. But do not ye after their works, for they say, and do not. For they bind heavy burdens, and grievous to be borne, and lay on them men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do, for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries, and enlarge the borders of their garments." And love the uppermost rooms at feast, and the chief seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the markets, and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But be ye not called Rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren. And call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father which is in heaven. Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ." But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye compass sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, ye make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. Woe unto you, ye blind guides, which say, Whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing. But whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple... He is a debtor, ye fools and blind, for whether is greater the gold or the temple that sanctifieth the gold. And whosoever shall swear by the altar, it is nothing, but whosoever sweareth by the gift that is upon it, he is guilty. Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater the gift or the altar that sanctifieth the gift. Whoso therefore shall swear by the altar, sweareth by it, and by all things thereon. And whoso shall swear by the temple, sweareth by it, and by him that dwelleth therein. And he that shall swear by heaven, sweareth by the throne of God, and by him that sitteth thereon. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye have to have done, and not to leave the other undone. Ye blind guides which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. 
Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because ye build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous. And say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets." Wherefore ye be witnesses unto yourselves, that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers. Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them shall ye scourge in your synagogues, and persecute them from city to city." that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, son of Barachias, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Well, Matthew gives the greater treatment to this uh, occasion right here, but let's do read the three verses from Mark chapter 12. Verse 38, And he said unto them in his doctrine, Beware of the scribes which love to go in long clothing and love salutations in the marketplaces and the chief seats in the synagogues and the uppermost rooms at the feast, which devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These shall receive greater damnation. Now over to Luke chapter 20. And there we find that he has a more abbreviated account as well. Verse 45, then in the audience of all the people, he said unto his disciples, Beware of the scribes which desire to walk in long robes and love greetings in the markets and the highest seats in the synagogues and the chief rooms at feast, which devour widows' houses and for a show make long prayers. The same shall receive greater damnation. Wow. Jesus really unleashes on the scribes and Pharisees on this occasion. Perhaps his biggest criticism of their hypocrisy ever. Mark and Luke just give an overview of this verbal assault against the Pharisees and the hypocrites, but Matthew devotes 36 verses to it. All three synoptic gospels have the phrase, shall receive the greater damnation. Matthew, however, does a greater coverage of Jesus' words to really drive the point home about these serpents. He calls them that in verse 33. In verse 2, he points out that these Jewish leaders have placed themselves on the level with Moses, but they don't observe the very commands they issue. 
They love the praise they get for appearing righteous. Thus, they apparently wore their phylacteries all the time. Now, these phylacteries were wallets worn on the wrist and around the forehead, and these contained the Old Testament passages of Scripture known as the Shema. We see that in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Now, these Scripture passages contained in the Shema uh, are Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, Deuteronomy 11, 13 to 21, and Numbers chapter 15, verses 37 to 41. They were back then, and still are, ceremonially written by a special rabbi tradesman and placed inside these wallets. The Jewish term in the Old Testament, and today for these wallets, is tefillin. Today's Orthodox Jews just wear them during their prayer times. The whole concept is based upon their understanding of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 8, which says, And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. The Pharisees apparently liked how holy they looked when they wore these phylacteries, so they just wore them all the time, not just at prayer times. Now, the borders of their garments is a significant term in verse 5 as well. This practice arises from Numbers chapter 15, verses 37 to 41. This ancient fashion statement is actually still the rage. Orthodox Jews even today are still adamant about observing this law. The Hebrew word for fringe or border is zitzit, and that's what today's Jews actually call it. As a matter of fact, the law is particularly significant in light of the two occasions where the people just wanted to touch the zitzit of Jesus' garment in Matthew chapter 9, verse 20, and Matthew chapter 14, verse 36. This fringe from the garment was considered very sacred. After all, it was decreed by God himself to be worn. Obviously, these Pharisees and scribes had enlarged beyond common practice this zitzit to appear to be more than just the average run-of-the-mill holy. They wanted to be viewed as holier than others. I guess they felt that clothes make the man. These Jewish leaders just loved the glory of being regarded as holy men in the sight of the everyday Jew. In Matthew chapter 23, verses 6 through 12, Jesus addresses there the excessive desire for recognition by insisting on being addressed as rabbi or master. These were unmerited titles of recognition. They arbitrarily bestowed upon one another, and they weren't based upon any objective criteria. To them, it was a you-scratch-my-back and I'll-scratch-yours type of proposition. I'm certain these Pharisees keyed in on Jesus' words of verse 10, where he says, Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. And exactly who is this Christ, keeping in mind that Christ is the Greek word for Messiah? So who exactly is this Christ? Well, Jesus himself, of course. Two different words are used here in the discussion. The word rabbi is a transliteration of the Greek, which is transliteration of the Hebrew Aramaic word, denoting an official title of honor. In the same discussion here, the word master comes from the Greek word kathegetes, meaning master or teacher. It kind of reminds me of those that I've met in my lifetime who insist on being called doctor when people address them. Then Jesus issues a series of woes on these hypocrites. 
This word woe is a transliteration from the Greek word pronounced nearly the same way, and it's an expression of intense grief. Look at the woes he pronounces here against the scribes and Pharisees. In verse 13, he says, Woe to you because you lead the people away from God. Verse 14, because you exploit widows for your own gain. Verse 15, because you work hard to proselyte people to yourselves, but not to God. Verse 16, woe to you because you have abused the concept of making an oath. And verse 23, because you emphasize tithing and ignore spiritual attributes. Woe unto you because, in verse 25, you're clean on the outside, but dirty on the inside. And in verse 27, you look beautiful on the outside, but are full of dead men's bones on the inside. And finally, woe to you hypocrites because you seem to respect the Old Testament prophets, but had you lived during their day, you would have been among them who also persecuted those prophets. That's in verse 29. Well, there was nothing good said about these Jewish leaders. Even their prayers were corrupt when Jesus says in verse 14, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make a long prayer. Therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation." So, what did Jesus really think of these highly esteemed Jewish leaders? Well, he sums it up in verse 33 when he concludes, Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Jesus issues his condemnation on them in verses 37 to 39 as he laments over Jerusalem. Now, don't think for a moment that these Pharisees were good men simply because their faith seemed to exceed that of the Sadducees. Jesus literally pronounces them as worthy of hell in this very passage. Jesus mentions a couple of murders in the Old Testament, the first one Abel, and the last one recorded in Chronicles, Zacharias. He references the death of Abel at the hand of Cain in Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. And with Zacharias, also Zechariah, he was slain by Judas king Joash back in 2 Kings chapter 12, verses 17 to 21, and 2 Chronicles chapter 24, verses 20 to 27. In other words, Jesus covers the period of the Old Testament when righteous people were slain by wicked people. This is not the first time Jesus made this point. He had done so earlier back in Luke chapter 11, verses 47 through 50. And what exactly is the point that Jesus is making here? Well, it's introduced in verse 30. Here's what he says. And say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them the blood of the prophets. In other words, Jesus goes on to emphasize in verses 31 to 38 that these Pharisees are exactly the kind of wicked men that in fact did persecute and kill the prophets of old. Matthew chapter 23, verse 38, has particular significance when Jesus says, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Jesus pulls together two prophetic passages of Scripture to make that point. The first is drawn from Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 5, which says, But if you will not hear these words, I swear by myself, saith the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. In that particular passage, Jeremiah is prophesying the fall of the house of Judah to the Babylonians. Now, that fall was finalized with the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. From that time through Jesus' day, Israel had been subservient to other nations. 
Since that time, they've been looking for a Messiah. And that leads us to verse 39 of Matthew chapter 23, where uh, we find that it has particular significance, as Jesus says this, For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Well, now that's a quotation from Psalm 118.26. That verse says, Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. The name of the Lord in that passage is the special name for the God of the Jews, Jehovah, otherwise pronounced Yahweh. After the resurrection of Jesus, the authentication of Jesus as the Messiah, it'll be complete then. And we see that Jesus is, in fact, Jehovah. Incidentally, Jesus again quotes from Jeremiah 22.5 and Psalm 118.26 in Luke chapter 13.35. Jesus commends the widow who gave all as opposed to the rich who gave just a portion. Her contribution was two mites, defined here as being the equivalent to a farthing. In Roman coinage, we are told that 64 farthings are equivalent to a Roman denarion. We see in Matthew chapter 20, verse 2, that laborers were paid one penny or one denarion per day to work in the vineyard. Therefore, you can see that two mites was a mighty small, <laughs> pun intended, it was a mighty small offering in the context of usefulness. However, the widow, Jesus says, to her, it was huge. In John chapter 20, we move over to John's gospel. In verses 20 to 22, we find uh, a situation with some Greeks. Verse 20. And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came, therefore, to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. Now, it'd be easy to pass over these verses with very little notice, but my impression is that this little verbal exchange sets the stage for Jesus' discourse in verses 23 to 50, which we're going to read in just a few moments. Now, understand the setting. Jesus has just ridden into Jerusalem in royal style, fulfilling the Old Testament messianic prophecy, as he went. And so we can see that, by the way, in uh, the triumphal entry passage in Matthew 21, 1 through 11, paralleled by Mark 11, 1 through 10, Luke 19, 29 through 40, and John 12, verses 12 through 19. Now, the common people in Jerusalem, well, they've embraced Jesus as the Messiah. They're ready for him to begin ruling. Since the messianic rule prophesied by the prophets of the Old Testament is a worldwide rule, Naturally, these Greeks are interested in knowing where exactly they fit into the program. Well, the, the passage doesn't suggest that they're Jewish proselytes, so it would appear that they've come to meet with the Messiah to get some details on this new messianic rule. So, beginning with John chapter 12, verse 23, Jesus sets the record straight on what's about to happen. Verse 23, And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, 
Let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I into this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven, saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people, therefore, that stood by and heard it, said that it thundered. Others said, An angel spake to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. The people answered him, We have heard out of the law that Christ abideth forever. And how sayest thou, the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus said unto them, Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while ye have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. While ye have light, believe in the light, that ye may be the children of light. These things spake Jesus, and departed, and did hide himself from them. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. That the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again, He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. These things said Isaiah, when he saw his glory, and spake of him. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him. Because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Well, now, if context means anything here, and I think it certainly does, Jesus here is responding to the request of the Gentiles that we saw in the earlier section of Scripture, those Gentiles that want to meet with him. Jesus sets the record straight in verses 23 to 28 when he proclaims that he has not come to reign at this point in time, but rather to die. Reigning comes later. These words regarding his imminent crucifixion are confirmed by a voice from heaven validating what Jesus has just spoken, a voice which sounded like thunder to some and was perceived by others to be an angel speaking to Jesus. After the voice from heaven, Jesus goes on to even greater specifics about his purpose here. He even prophesies his death on the cross in verses 31 to 33. Notice Jesus' reference to Satan in verse 31 when he says, now shall the prince of this world be cast out. Literally, the death of Jesus and subsequent resurrection will be a tremendous setback to Satan as he attempts to thwart God's plan of redemption. It's interesting that the Jews had sought to stone Jesus on several occasions, but here he prophesies his death on the cross in verses 32 and 33. And the people understand that this was a prophecy of his death. When they replied to Jesus in verse 34, we have heard out of the law that Christ abideth forever, and how sayest thou, the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Now, this is a great turning point for the people. The man they'd welcomed into Jerusalem as royalty is now proclaiming that he's come to Jerusalem to die. What's the deal here? Well, it's time to invoke the suffering prophecy of Isaiah chapter 53. 
And the first verse of that chapter is quoted right here in verse 38. The remainder of Isaiah 53 prophesies the suffering of the Messiah prior to his rule over the earth. However, the people who have welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem were hearsay theologians. Most of them only knew what they'd been told by the well-studied in the synagogues. What about the well-studied people? Well, in verses 39 to 41, John alludes to another of Isaiah's prophecies, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. Isaiah's audience had hearts that were hardened by sin, and so did this audience of Jesus. Verse 42 is very telling regarding these people. He says, Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. So the stage is set for the crucifixion. The Jewish leaders apparently understood the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy regarding the necessary crucifixion of the Messiah, but their own selfish interests kept them from believing on Jesus. The common people here didn't seem to have information regarding the course of the Messiah that he must suffer for, so they just didn't know the common people. This session continues, by the way, in John chapter 12, beginning with verse 44. And there we see that Jesus is very clear in verse 48 when he says, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. And we'll be looking at that passage in our next New Testament reading. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Fayette Bible Church, Paul Walker.